Next, this month's special series focus on neurology and psychiatry. Throughout this month, ReachMD welcomes an array of experts to explore developments in neuroscience and mental health. Sleep disturbance is extremely common in Parkinson's disease patients. More than two-thirds of community-dwelling patients are affected. What are our options for treating this population? Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Leslie Lent, your host, and with me today is Dr. Matthew Menza. Dr. Menza is Professor of Psychiatry and Neurology and Interim Chairman of the Department of Psychiatry at Robert Wood Johnson Medical School in New Jersey. Among his many other clinical accomplishments, Dr. Menza has studied hypnotics in the treatment of insomnia in patients with Parkinson's disease. Welcome to ReachMD, Dr. Menza. Thank you, Leslie. I'm glad to be here. Why are sleep problems so common in Parkinson's patients? Well, that's a good question, Leslie. Certainly, you're right. They are very, very common. To the extent that we understand it, it's a complicated multifactorial problem. There are many independent sleep disorders that are common, such as sleep apnea and REM behavior disorder. I'm sure we'll talk more about those later in the show. In addition to this, you find a lot of depression and a lot of anxiety in these patients, and that surely contributes to some of the problem. Lastly, there are a lot of symptoms particular to Parkinson's disease, which can directly affect sleep, such as when people have painful dystonias or frequently, since they're not very mobile, they will get into one position and stay there until they're in a lot of pain. Most of us just naturally roll out of that position without waking up, but since they're more rigid, they may actually get enough pain from that position that they wake up. And lastly, they have a lot of autonomic dysfunctions, so they have a lot of nocturia, so they're up quite a few times to go to the bathroom, and many of the medications that they take for Parkinson's disease can interfere with sleep. So it's a very complicated problem that requires a bit of teasing out to really get to the cause of the problem in any one individual. Now, you mentioned obstructive sleep apnea and REM behavior disorder. What other common sleep disturbances do you see in Parkinson's patients? Sleep apnea, which I'm sure most of your listeners are familiar with, in which people don't breathe very regularly. As they fall deeply asleep and the muscles in the back of their throat relax, they actually begin to block the passage of air. So you get a lot of snoring or choking noises. Eventually, if they're not moving enough air, their blood oxygen will fall. And eventually, if it falls low enough, their brain will wake them up or almost wake them up. So they may have literally hundreds of times during the night where they have these mini awakenings and the next day they're dead tired because they haven't had any sustained deep sleep. REM behavior disorder, which is actually pretty common in Parkinson's disease, is a really interesting and unusual disorder in which for most of us when we dream, our voluntary muscles are completely relaxed, I guess just so we don't act out a dream. For some reason or other, in a substantial number of people with Parkinson's disease, there is this failure to inhibit those voluntary muscles during dreaming, and they begin to act out their dreams. So if they're lying next to their bed partner and they're having a dream that somebody's chasing them, then they flail out and smack their bed partner, or they may jump up out of the bed and crash themselves into the wall. So it's actually quite dramatic, and very often people won't tell you about it because they're worried that they think that they're beating their spouse. Mm -hmm. One other one that's kind of interesting is periodic limb movements of sleep, and that's basically a variant of restless legs in which people are sort of bouncing around in the bed all night. So we see a, a whole range of these disorders like this. We can certainly also see excessive daytime sleepiness and difficulty falling asleep or difficulty staying asleep. So pretty much all the sleep disorders I've ever heard of. <laughs> That's exactly right. It's a, Parkinson's disease is a wonderful little trip through the diagnostic manual for sleep disorders.
How do these sleep disorders affect the quality of life of the Parkinson's patients? Well, as you can imagine, uh, it has a tremendous impact on it. I think any of us who had to stay up late on call or uh, couldn't sleep for one reason or another know what you feel like the next day. And if you can imagine doing this night after night after night, you can have some sense of what this is like for people who really are not sleeping very well. There have been a number of sort of formal surveys of these patients, and not surprisingly, they will tell you that not sleeping is one of the worst parts of their illness. Mm. It certainly is true early on in the illness when many of the movement disorders that characterize Parkinson's disease are fairly well controlled with the dopaminergic treatments we have available. So they may not have much impairment from their motor problems, but if they're not sleeping, they will be quite impaired from that. So this has a a real impact on how they're feeling about their life. And by the way, also has a major impact on their caregiver, because if they're up multiple times a night, or if they're yelling out at night, or snoring really loud, their bed partner's probably not sleeping very well either. Do we have any idea about the etiology here? Yeah, again, it's it's a complicated problem, and I think the, the best approach to it is really to do a good sleep evaluation like we would in just about anybody else. We usually start with asking the sort of general question of, is there anything unusual about your sleep? And that gives the bed partner who, by the way, with in Parkinson's disease, many of these individuals come with their spouses to the appointment, so you may have the opportunity to talk to their bed partner about their sleep patterns. But we ask, is there anything unusual? And we're looking for whether or not somebody's making too much noise, and we'll specifically ask that question. That's trying to get at the sleep apnea questions of snoring or choking. We also ask about is there's too much movement, and that helps us to get at the REM behavior disorder issues or the periodic leg movements of sleep. So we'll ask specifically about that, and if we hear more about that, we'll delve into, you know, is it screaming, is it yelling, do they jump up out of the bed? So we start with that. We certainly do a quick inventory of whether or not the problem is mostly falling asleep or mostly staying asleep. Typically, people who have trouble falling asleep, you're more likely to find problems with depression or anxiety. People who have more difficulty staying asleep, you'll want to look for, are they up a lot peeing at night, or are there one of these other problems there? So it really is an investigation into what could be the causes of insomnia and really anyone. Given the fact that sleep disturbance is so common in Parkinson's, I assume you screen everybody. I think it's certainly worth asking people how they're sleeping. The problem, of course, with that approach is almost everyone's going to tell you they're not sleeping very well. (laughs) That would eat it. (laughs) And then then you're stuck with that. I think it's also worth asking how bad is it. You know, Mm -hmm. somebody's missing an hour of sleep and yet they're feeling fine the next day and they're functioning. I don't think that it's really something that we have to pursue too much further. But if they're really feeling very, very tired the next day and it's having a major impact on their life, or if you think that there's a condition which might affect them physically, like sleep apnea, then obviously you have to go after those. Many times when you get positive answers to questions about apnea or REM behavior disorder, you may need to have them get a polysomnogram or a sleep study at a sleep center so that the uh, disorder can be better characterized. And certainly for treatment of apnea, you want to have somebody who's experienced in the use of CPAP or a dental appliance do those treatments for you. If you're new to our channel, you're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt, your host, and with me today is Dr. Matthew Menza. We are discussing the common sleep complaints of Parkinson patients. 
that's always kind of a loaded topic among non-sleep docs, Dr. Menza, is when do you order a polysomnogram? Any tips on who you might suggest? You know, I hear from non-sleep docs that every time I order a PSG, it's positive. So why bother? Everybody always comes back with a positive problem for, say, for sleep apnea. What are your thoughts about that? Well, you know, I think if somebody has real signs of sleep apnea, if their bed partner tells you that they really do hear choking and periods in which somebody isn't breathing, that's a potentially very dangerous condition for a variety of reasons, and I really think we're obligated at that point to get a sleep study. Most sleep centers or places that do sleep studies will also do part of the night where they apply the CPAP mask and look to see if there's actually an improvement in the sleeping during the use of CPAP. And, you know, I don't think most of us in our office can figure out the dials on the CPAPs machines. So I think it's worth getting it done for that. Also, you know, there are a variety of other things like dental appliances, which pull somebody's jaw forward. And there are also surgical approaches to cleaning out the posterior pharynx that opens that up a bit. So I think while I understand the comment that everybody comes back with some degree of apnea, I think for those who have a really significant degree of apnea, which are, you know, those are fewer, but are people who really can be helped with this. I think, you know, for things like our REM behavior disorder, you probably can make that diagnosis very easily clinically. Somebody is in the middle of a dream, screaming and jumping out of bed. It's pretty straightforward what the problem is. We've seen some individuals who've really hurt themselves very mm-hmm. badly. I saw a guy two weeks ago who broke his arm in three places oh. when he slammed himself into his dresser as he jumped out of bed. And given that these are people with Parkinson's disease whose balance is not great, they can also jump up out of bed and fall over and really hurt themselves. So, mm-hmm. But, you know, getting to the question of DNA, a polysomnogram for something like that, I think you probably don't. You can go ahead and treat that yourself. But certainly apnea and maybe PLMS in which a periodic limits of sleep in which people are not really often aware that it's happening, the sleep center may be useful for that. Now, back to REM behavior disorder, how do you treat that? There are a couple of approaches. This is another area that has not been terribly well studied, but one compound that's been studied the most is clonopin, clonazepam, which is a benzodiazepine. And at least in Parkinson's disease, the one fairly large study that has been done showed that about 90% of people were really very well, very helped with that. That's been my clinical experience also. It's one of those disorders that sounds very dramatic, but responds better than most of the things I treat to a uh, fairly low dose of clonopin or clonazepam, so maybe a half a milligram at night mm-hmm. of clonazepam really does help most of the people that you'll see with that disorder. How about treating insomnia? Any special tips on dealing with insomnia and hypnotic agents in Parkinson's patients? I've known you've done several studies on this. Right. Insomnia, I think the first thing to look at is whether or not somebody really has a significant degree of depression or anxiety. I mean, I think the most common pattern that we see is somebody lays down to go to sleep and all of a sudden their head starts buzzing with all their worries and the problems that they're going to have tomorrow and the things that could go wrong. And they just they get so activated by thinking about all of these things that they can't fall asleep. In that case, you know, usually some kind of a treatment for the depression and the anxiety may very well be the best approach. There are also obviously a lot of non-pharmacologic approaches like cognitive behavioral therapy in which they teach people to calm themselves and relax as they're trying to fall asleep. I mean, the traditional one is you count sheep, but the principle behind that is that you find something that's repetitive and monotonous that will get your minds off your worries. 
I'm a golfer, and when I can't fall asleep, I imagine myself on the first tee of the golf course, and I hit the ball, and I walk down the fairway, and I hit the second ball, and I go to the first green, and I putt, and before I know it, I'm asleep, because it's a repetitive, and most people would say monotonous activity that gets my mind off the problem. So those kinds of things can actually be quite helpful. There are some online approaches to this, by the way, since... Many physicians don't have a psychologist that they can refer to to do these kinds of treatments. There's an online service called MySelfHelp.com. It's all one word, MySelfHelp.com. It has a variety of modules, including one for insomnia that actually some of my patients have had a lot of luck with. So I think it's worth telling people about that, that they may find some sort of treatment. And this is, I think it costs about 20 or 30 bucks to go through this online may actually be useful. In terms of medications, we all know there are the older benzodiazepines like Restoril that some people use for sleep. There are also the whole new group of non-benzodiazepine benzodiazepine receptor agonists like Lunesta, which is a Sopiclone or Ambien. Those are actually quite good. We're in the midst of a study right now for those in Parkinson's disease, and my sense is that they probably work pretty well in those people as they do in most people. You do need to be cautious about next day sedation and making sure you warn people about driving. You also have to be careful about dependence and occasionally you'll see somebody who has some of these really odd behaviors at night where they do things that they don't remember at night. So you have to be a little careful with them, but I think in general they're pretty useful. Any comments about it? It seems so many providers now use the antipsychotics as hypnotic agents. So any problems with using, say, quetiapine, probably the most common in this group, used for sleep? My first reaction to that is that it's an awfully expensive sleeping pill. Mm -hmm. No Uh, kidding. Quetiapine costs (laughs) a lot of money. Seroquel is a lot of money. There's no question that it helps people to sleep, and I hope that nobody is jumping to that as a first-line sleep treatment. I think we have everything from trazodone to Ambien to the older benzodiazepines to certainly non-pharmacologic approaches. I think all of those things need to be tried way before one gets to an atypical antipsychotic. Having said that, you know, in fairness, even in my practice, there are occasional people who I do get to that point. You know, there may be some value in that, understanding that there are also downsides, including weight gain and metabolic issues and certainly cost. Great. Well, thank you so much for being on the show today. You're welcome. We've been speaking with Dr. Matthew Menza today about sleep disturbances in Parkinson's disease. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt. You're listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Please visit our website at reachmd.com. You've been listening to this month's special series, Focus on Neurology and Psychiatry. For downloadable podcasts of all the programs in this series, go to ReachMD.com and choose the series Focus on Neurology and Psychiatry.